All right, good to see you today. Hope you are all doing well as we are getting down towards the end of April. And uh, we managed to avoid the snow this week, which uh, is appropriate for the end of April, I would think, isn't it? Still adjusting to the realities of living here. But uh, good to see everybody on this uh, beautiful Sabbath day. So it was an interesting week uh, for a number of reasons. And one of those reasons was uh, in the middle of the week, we got a letter hand-delivered to the office. So I was in with Debbie, and, and we were talking. She handed it to me, so I opened it up, and it was, a, it was a letter from the Porch Fest Organizing Committee. Now, some of you know about Porch Fest. That's an event that takes place here on Mapleton Hill uh, in September, typically, where different homeowners uh, provide space on their porch or in their front yard area for mostly local bands that just come and play different styles, different people, different things. And we have participated uh, for a number of years in this event in a couple ways. Uh, one is the thing that we're most famous for here. We open our doors and allow people to use the bathrooms. That's, uh, that is our, our greatest claim to fame on the hill in many ways. But. Uh, also, we have hosted bands on our porch in the past, and I think you guys even played a few times. Eliah led out a few times uh, with a band on our porch. But they have a... Oh, and we also have done for them... Uh, we have uh, made copies of materials and things like that uh, with our equipment. And so they were writing us an official letter to thank us for our participation through the years, and they included a donation of $1,000 to us just for that participation. So I thought that was amazing and uh, very kind of them to do that and very nice that we've been able to engage the community uh, in this way. And I've already told them that uh, we would participate again uh, this year uh, in, in whatever ways we can. So that's coming up again in September and you may want to check it out at some point. But I wanted to let you know that. And then there's another thing that happened this week that really, I think, is ultimately... Uh, uh, a testimony to, to Brigida and to Debbie and to the relationship they've formed with Smiley Construction. Now, if you don't know anything about Smiley Construction, they rent a room from us downstairs during the week and, and coordinate their, uh, their business out of there. Now, the, the owner, I guess, lives, he actually lives closer to the church than any of us. Uh, but I think he just lives right off over here somewhere. And uh, so they have an office downstairs. They run their business out of there. Dominic is usually there during the days. And every now and then he brings Luigi with him. Luigi is this, this massive, totally intimidating, but also incredibly good German shepherd, black German shepherd about this size. He'll come into my, he'll nose into my office and come in and I'm sitting at my desk, you know, and his face is right there. He's totally intimidating, but he's also just an amazing dog. Anyway, he'll hang out here sometimes. But uh, they're downstairs all the time. Uh, it was a couple weeks ago, uh, Dominic said to Debbie, um, it looks like this foyer area could use a repainting. And she said yes, and my office as well, and some other things. And... So he set to work on it and got one of their crews, and they spent, it was a crew of like five or six or seven guys, they spent four days this week 
repainting that entrance area and Debbie's office and Jay's office and the bathroom there, just doing the whole thing for us uh, as a gift, which is an amazing gift for them to make to us. And I, I wanted to let you know this uh, kindness that they had done for us this week and how amazing it is. So when you go through, check it out. It's, it's essentially the same as it was before, except everything's a little lighter. The trim is a little lighter color. The walls are a little lighter color. It kind of makes that whole area uh, a little brighter. So, so note that as you go through there. They did an amazing job on it. And uh, we're just blessed that uh, they were willing to do that for us. So I appreciate those guys. It, it's also nice, uh, also nice for Debbie because she's never here by herself. You know, even if I'm not here, they usually are, and uh, often there's a guard dog, so she feels quite safe in this building. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's neat to, uh, just neat to have that interaction, and what a blessing they were to us. So, all right, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your goodness, for your blessings upon us, for the ways your blessings come, not always in ways uh, that we can, uh, can see clearly. Uh, but sometimes, sometimes in very literal and material ways. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you have your eye on this community and on this place. And we pray your blessing now as we reflect on your word uh, and on Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So we start with a question today. Do you know who Jesus is? Now, a question like that could be answered on many levels, and likely none of us here today would say a blanket no, but then there aren't any of us here today probably that could say yes on every level, because our experiences are different, our context is different, our background is different, our, our learning is different. There's a lot of different levels. You know, you could say, I have heard his name before. I guess that would be a kind of a beginner level. I've read a gospel or two. I've heard sermons about him. A lot of these are just uh, kind of a passive way of knowing Jesus. I can identify him in pictures. That's kind of a curious thing, isn't it? When you see paintings, how frequently you actually can tell, oh, that one must be Jesus. I don't know how they do that exactly, but, but somehow a decent artist can usually cue you one way or another which one is actually Jesus in the picture. Uh, maybe, maybe, do you know who Jesus is? Maybe you would answer, uh, he is the Messiah, or he is the Son of God. Well, those are titles anyway. Whether or not we understand exactly what they mean, they're at least titles we're probably familiar with. Uh, he is Savior. He is Friend. He is Lord. Maybe, maybe you're on that level where some people in society would think you're crazy because you say, yes, he talks to me. Do you know who Jesus is? It matters, of course, because what you perceive to be truth about Jesus will become what you believe about Jesus. But as we know, in really every aspect of our lives, 
Our perceptions are almost always incomplete, leaving all of us with only a partial picture with varying degrees of clarity. So we're going on today with where we started last Sabbath, and and we posed the question last Sabbath, what do you believe about Jesus? And and where we concluded last week was, was with a couple points. One was, we have got to be humble, because there is what we believe, and then there is reality. And unfortunately, they're not always the same. Now, we want them to be the same. We're trying to make them the same, especially in the context of something as important as what we believe about Jesus. But we need to start with humility, recognizing we probably don't have it all right yet. So we start with humility. And then we have to challenge ourselves from that point. Am I actually willing to accept Jesus for who he is rather than for whom my expectations demand him to be. We said this last week. Our perceptions lead to assumptions, and our assumptions lead to detailed expectations. And while expectations can bring us hope, they can also blind our eyes when reality and expectation don't align. So in this context, we have to challenge ourselves. Where did I get my expectations about Jesus? Did you get them from church? A lot of people get them from church. Because the point is, we have to get them somewhere. The faith is something that is passed down. We don't just generally have this experience and then we know about Jesus. There's often experience involved, but usually there's an introduction somewhere. We're told. Often it comes from church. Some people get their expectations about Jesus from the religious right wing. And, and, and let's understand the truth here. Very often people who who get very caught up in right-wing and conspiracy, actually, in their hearts, want very much to believe truth. But they get caught in this cycle that carries them into some really weird places. But then there's other people in our day who, who maybe as a reaction to that, or maybe not, have, have, have looked to society at large to get their expectations about Jesus, or, or from liberalism at large to get their expectations on Jesus. And it's often very funny when you hear the far left and the far right sniping at each other about what Jesus would and wouldn't do. What I want to say to you is all of these are traps, and each of them seek or have sought to hijack the real Jesus for their own cause, just like the people of Nazareth did. We spent last Sabbath talking about the people of Nazareth. You see, they were happy with Jesus for a while, but he lost them when he started to make it clear in what he was saying 
that not only was he not about to lead a revolution against the Gentiles in general and against the Romans in particular, he was actually starting to sound like maybe he was going to show sympathy to Gentiles. The people of Nazareth were great with the idea of the Messiah coming until it started to look like maybe he wasn't going to overthrow the Romans. You see what expectations do to us. It was at this point they decided to throw Jesus off a cliff. Maybe you've been to this point with Jesus. So what do you believe about Jesus? Is he Savior? Do you need one? Is he Lord? Do you learn from him and do what he says? That's kind of what that term means. Is he king? What even is a king? We're terrible at this. We're Americans. We don't know how that works. Is he a friend? Yeah, but okay, in what way? This issue of identifying who Jesus is and then putting faith in him is really the most important issue of life. For it deals with ultimate beyond-life realities that if, in fact, these ultimate beyond-life realities are true, make all the rest of the issues of our life, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, he refers to all the rest of this stuff we call life as light, momentary afflictions. I'll tell you what, they don't feel like that to me when I'm in them. But speaking in the context of the greater reality, Paul calls these light momentary afflictions that are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, according to Paul, but the things that are unseen are eternal. But this whole concept of looking to the things that are unseen is a classic paradox, isn't it? And, it, and it's an excellent example of this, of this process that takes place in human language called the, grammatic, the grammatization of language. And the idea of this is where a literal concept becomes figurative over time. I'll give you the perfect example of it. I could come to you and say... I was literally chained to my desk this week. And you would know that what I meant was I was figuratively chained to my desk this week. If you actually look in the dictionary, one of the, one of the definitions of literal is figurative. It's like the ultimate example of the grammatization of language. An actual term turned into its opposite to make a point. Anyway, so we're seeing that here, this concept because in English it says looking to that which is unseen. Seeing what you can't see. And actually this holds up, this, this imagery actually holds up in, in the Greek because apparently they did the same thing with their own language. Because in the Greek looking to is, is skopuntone. And that root there, scope, you know, we still have that. You, you have a scope. 
It means to look intently at. So it's saying, he's literally saying, look intently at the things that are unseen. Seen in Greek is blepomena. Blepomena. And it says unblepomena. Things that are not seen. So seeing things that are not seen. The same imagery is at work in Greek here as it is in English. And it's this idea that when our perception grows properly, we will be able to see unseen things better than even we see seen things. Such is the reality about Jesus. And such is the nature of our challenge with the question, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you only believe the seen? Do you believe the unseen? It matters. Because as John says in chapter 1 of his gospel, John 1 verse 9, the true light, again, here's this imagery language, light is what enables us to see, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Nazareth is the extreme example of this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So it matters what you believe. It probably doesn't matter that you believe perfectly, which is fortunate because we'll never be able to do that. But it does matter, particularly in the case of Jesus, that you get some stuff right. But now lest we come to believe that belief itself saves, as though it were some work we do, let me try to disabuse you of that notion as we go along today with an ironic story of entities that know quite clearly who Jesus is, but it doesn't come as good news to them. They believe, but it doesn't save them. So we'll backtrack here to try to create context. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4 primarily. So if you want to grab one of those Bibles in front of you, I've got that same translation here. Luke chapter 4, and we're going to start where we ended last week, verse 28. When they heard these things, that's the people of Nazareth, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. I've had a sermon or two like that. That's not fun. All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. This is Jesus, of course. So that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So that's where we left it last week. Now we pick up in verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. That's a fascinating statement. It's interesting language that makes the point that to hear Jesus was more than a passive experience. You didn't hear him say something and think, ah, oh, yeah, that's kind of interesting. 
No, there was something more there. And it adds credence to a phrase that Jesus used to use from time to time. Do you remember it? He would say, he who has an ear, let him hear. He said, I'm not going to waste a whole bunch of time on proofs here. I'm going to tell you what it is, and you're going to know in your heart I'm right. And if you have an ear, you're going to hear it. What it suggests is that truth is knowable when Jesus speaks it, if you're willing to hear it. But you've got to be willing to hear it. To have authority means you don't need something or someone else to confirm your words. And it seems when you heard Jesus, you heard authority. His voice had the ring of truth. So in, in what is likely a, a parallel to this story in Luke, Mark adds an interesting detail, a contrast to what the people were accustomed to. And I'm just going to grab that real quick out of Mark chapter 1, verse 21. It says, And they went into Capernaum, just like the Luke account, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now verse 22 and they were astonished at his teaching. This is all the same so far. Now listen to this part. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Ooh, that hurts a little, doesn't it? See, there were the people who got up week after week. I guess, I guess that's me, right? There were the people who got up week after week but somehow there wasn't that ring of truth in their voice. There was something different when Jesus spoke. And it wasn't just that he made sense. There was a power behind it. A conviction that went with the convincing. I think sometimes we spend too much energy trying to convince. And fail to realize that at its core, faith is a conviction. Yeah, there's evidence. Yeah, there's things that need to be said. But we're calling for conviction, which is a core heart experience. There was a power behind Jesus' words. And there were entities present when Jesus spoke that recognized even more keenly than the humans in the room Recognize this authority in Jesus' voice. Luke chapter 4, verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now those who read the Bible with regularity, are very familiar with the language about demons. And, and when we're reading the Bible, we're likely quite comfortable with it in the context of Scripture. But we are also in this day likely quite ignorant about the subject in the thing we call real life. Now apparently this sort of thing was a part of real life back then, but 
but we really don't know what to do. I'm in that category. I have a book in my office. It's a, this big, thick book by a, a guy named Charles Taylor. It's called A Secular Age. It's a remarkable book, actually. And he works through this process in the book. But, but very early on in the book, he talks about this period of time where humanity went through the demystifying of reality. And what it was, was, was during the Enlightenment, as, as humans began to take a more cause and effect approach to reality and what exists and what things are, and began to come up with natural explanations for things that used to be thought of as mystical phenomena. Now, these natural explanations have served us well, as most things behave according to natural laws and rules. For example, volcanoes are not fire gods. There's a natural process called plate tectonics where, where rock sinks below the surface and then pushes back up through and creates volcanoes. Um, another one, weather is actually the result of uneven heating of the Earth's surface interacting with the Earth's rotation. It's not mysterious. People are not suddenly, out of the blue, struck down, becoming unable to speak or move on one side, or even becoming comatose. They're not struck, they have a stroke. But maybe that's where we got that word, I don't know. You see, we look for explanations. And that causes us probably to explain away demons, and that, that could be to our peril. But demons didn't seem to be a stretch to the people in Jesus' day. And the way Jesus interacts with the demons in the story implies they were indeed real and that they did, in fact, inhabit humans. It's kind of crazy. They weren't even all that shocked that there was one in the synagogue. Now, the content of what the demon says in the context of the question, what do you believe about Jesus, is very relevant to us right here. Luke 4, verse 44, 34. Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So let's start with, with what the demon says at the end. Not, not the, the, the Holy One of God, but the one right before that. He says, I know who you are. Here's the irony. You've got a room full of the faithful. I mean, we're in synagogue. We're not in the marketplace. You've got a room full of the faithful, but it's only the demon who knows unequivocally and fully who Jesus actually is. Kind of ironic. You see the irony there, right? The faithful are in the room. They've been schooled in Scripture all their lives. They're looking for the Messiah, but it's only the demon who knows he's there. Perception leads to assumptions. Assumptions lead to detailed expectations. 
For the Jews in the room, they had a detailed expectation that this guy was not meeting, and it made it hard to see him as Messiah. But the demons also had some expectations, didn't they? And it made it easy for them to tell who it was. Have you come to destroy us? The demons had expectations. There's another place where you get a, a similar telling of the, the demons' expectation in encountering the Messiah. It's in Matthew chapter 28. We'll just grab a verse there really quick, but it's in the story where Jesus uh, heals the demoniac, or in Matthew it's demoniacs. There's two of them. It says, And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us? This is the demons again. O Son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? Seems like they have some expectations, don't they? The demons immediately recognized who Jesus was and understood what authority he had and discerned his purpose and that his purpose would lead to their destruction. It's sad that it seems so easy for the ones Jesus came to destroy to know exactly who he was, yet the ones Jesus came to save tended over time to want to throw him from a cliff. It makes you wonder sometimes if we actually want to be saved. Back to Luke chapter 4. Verse 34, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. First point, Jesus doesn't want the testimony of demons even if they speak the truth. It's interesting, isn't it? They're telling the truth. But Jesus says, no, you be quiet. Jesus doesn't want the testimony of the demons. It seems rather he wants the testimony of the humans even though we don't always speak the truth, especially about Jesus. Second point, the people in the synagogue are amazed. Not that there is a demon and a man in the synagogue. They don't seem to be shaken by that. But rather they're amazed that Jesus commanded it to come out with authority and the demon obeyed. That's kind of different from us, isn't it? We'd be a little hung up on the first part. But they're amazed that the demon obeyed. Now, we might be tempted to think that this encounter was an isolated incident, but Luke makes sure we don't make that mistake. There's an interlude section, or, or at least in the sense of our focus today on, on the testimony of these demons, that there is an interlude where Jesus demonstrates another authority. He asserts authority over disease as well. Luke chapter 4, verse 37 and reports about him went out, uh, went out into every place in the surrounding region. And Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. 
Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. This is actually very interesting, because the same language is used here. In your, in your English translation, he rebukes the demon, and he rebukes the fever. Well, it's the exact same word in Greek as well. And, and you've got to give me a second. Let's see if I can say it right. Ep eti mason. Ep eti mason. That's the word for rebuke that's used when he's talking to the demon. And then he says it again. Ep eti mason. He rebukes the fever. And in both cases, that which Jesus rebukes immediately obeys his word. Whether it's a demon or a fever or whatever. When Jesus rebukes it, it obeys. Kind of makes, makes me wonder if maybe we could use a little rebuking. Since we don't always obey, do we? But now the part that shows the synagogue incident was not a fluke. Verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. So what is the point? Demons know who Jesus is. And they obey his word. For them, it's not just what they perceive about Jesus, it's what they know. And it is the reality that Jesus is willing to use his power and authority to assure they do what he says, whether it's their will to do it or not, that drives their obedience. Yet Jesus never seems to do that with us, does he? He never forces us. Even though he has authority, even though he has power, even though he has the right, he never forces us. Do you know who Jesus is? I can tell you with a high degree of certainty that if there are any demons here today, they know, they know. How do you feel about them, the demons, who may or may not be here today, how do you feel about them potentially having more confidence in the power and authority of Jesus than you do? I personally hate that thought. But I also find it very challenging to my sometimes tepid faith and marginal expectations. Eliah, come on back up here. Here's the challenge for today. Don't let the demons believe in Jesus more than you believe in Jesus. That's the challenge. 
Don't let the demons believe in Jesus more than you believe in Jesus. Now, I think we got a long ways to go to make that reality. But can the unseen things be seen even more clearly than the seen things? We can only achieve this if we put our trust in Christ alone. 